Between the Lines with Virtual Academy. We all have a story to tell. Welcome to another edition of Between the Lines with Virtual Academy, podcast going beyond the bats to allow members of law enforcement, public safety, and first response a place to tell their stories and talk about the cases that have impacted their lives. Glad to have you guys along. I'm your co-host, Brent Hinson, and today I think it's going to be a fun one because already been informed by our guests that we're going to earn that explicit rating that we have here on the podcast. But he's from New Jersey, so I guess that's kind of an unspoken thing. A guy who, uh, well, rarely curses around me, but maybe he'll let it fly today, is our host, Mr. Michael Warren. How are you, sir? I'm, I'm, I'm good. I, and I, I'm excited about the, our conversation today. But Brent, can I just give you a little background real quick on this? Sure. The first time I really talked to this guy, there were a couple things that were going through my mind as, as I'm talking to him. The first thing I was thinking was that uh, perhaps he'd had something to drink, okay? Because I was having trouble understanding him. Then I realized that, that that wasn't the issue. I thought he was maybe English was a second language. But then once he once he came forth that he was from New Jersey, I understand why the hell I was having such a hard time understanding what he was saying. But once I started understanding him, I got really excited and I enjoyed my conversation. And that's why I'm looking forward to hearing what he has to say today. So why don't you go ahead and kick it off for us, man? Tell us well, tell us a little bit about this guy. It's, he's almost reached a mythical level. I've heard his name so often in conversations with you and other folks. It's good to have him on today. Our guest is a law enforcement administrator and educator who has served in a variety of roles during his nearly 18-year career with the Clifton, New Jersey Police Department, including FTO Unit Supervisor and Training Division Commander. For the past five years, he's been the president of the National Association of Field Training Officers Executive Board. And in 2019, he was actually the featured speaker during ILEDA's prestigious Emerson Hour event. It is our pleasure to welcome Paul Hasselberger to Between the Lines. How are you? Hey guys, how you doing, Paul? Uh, I, I don't want to dis. I don't definitely don't want to disappoint your audience. You guys are a bunch of fucking. You're like you're a bunch of clowns. Right out of the gate. Holy <laughs> moly! Boom! There you go. No one's disappointed. Um, I want to. We've broken the, the ice. Straight. I want everyone to set the record straight that I speak very clean and clear <laughs> and um, enunciated English. All right. And the person that was drinking when we first met was you. Yeah, listen, so maybe that, that has a little something to do with. <laughs> this just a lot of practice. You've been doing a lot of teaching, man. We're doing good. And, and uh, I, I am excited to have you here, dude. Um, we, we've been working to try and get this scheduled for a while. You do come with a reputation, and as much as I give you a hard time, it's a, a very revered reputation. So I have to ask you this because I know a little bit of the backstory. You getting into law enforcement was uh, a kick against the the current would if, if if you could take it that way. Yeah, sure. So um, I was right out of high school. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I ended up working in the mall. I'm a child in the '90s and I like the the stereotypical mall rat. And I actually was working for the company Hot Topic, <laughs> the punk rock skateboard uh, uh, company, and fairly uh, successful with them. They, they actually offered me a job out in California, but I was too much of a, of a, a little kid to move all the way across the country. So um, I kind of did that for a little bit, um, all the while listening to all the awesome stories my brother was uh, kind of generating while he was a police officer in Patterson, New Jersey. And uh, he piqued my interest enough to kind of start leaning that way. So I, I ended up putting myself through school and uh, ended up uh, joining uh, the force in 2004. But a little bit of a different way to get into it, right? I have a, my growing up, I wasn't really an athlete or I was more of a skateboarder, punk, loudmouth. You know, I, I 
got my master's degree in, in swearing. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, but I think that's given me a pretty unique uh, perspective. I mean, I, I took to the job pretty well. Um, and, uh, it's kind of been off to the races since with a lot of mentorship from uh, a lot of people, including my brother, huge, huge, uh, influence over me in my career. Is you, are you and your brother, the only people in your family that are public servants? Yeah. So he broke the ice for sure. Um, you know, my dad was in the military. My grandfather was in in the military. Um, but, uh, my brother was the first in our family to draw law enforcement. And, um, I have to confess I have little brother syndrome as well. So whatever my, my, my big brother did, I have to try to do just slightly better. So, uh, that also played to it. But uh, yeah, so it's just us. The, the only reason I bring up the whole military thing is, is because I, I am just again amazed at how we see these through these families this this thread of serving public, uh, both uh, law enforcement and the fire service and, and the military, and, and it, it just seems like there, there's a small segment of society that that does the the bulk of the service, the the dirty work, if you will. Uh, for the community. And uh, I think that's a noble thing. Yeah, I think, right. Super interesting. Cause there's something to be said about public servants and like the mindset that they have and probably the culture that they're raised in. Right. So like, I, I'm, I wouldn't, I'm not surprised that there's a lot of family tradition in public safety because you grow up knowing dad's a firefighter or a police officer, or you're a child of the military. Like you grow up, that's your normal that's that that dedication and service and that sacrifice is just the everyday you're in your in your everyday operating system so um and i think that's probably why there's there's so much um you know family ties to, to public safety now well, i have to ask you this what was uh young officer hasselberger what was he is gifted with his uh oration as you are or was that something that was that a skill that you had to develop? Yeah, so I had like actually, <laughs> I had I had school of confrontation, right? So like a classic <laughs> kid growing up, I didn't have a problem getting into it, but like, uh, so I had to learn that. I had to learn communication. I had to, uh, you know, I, I could fall back on my my rugged good looks and my sharp wit, but um, <laughs> at the end of the day, there was there was a there was a steep steep learning curve, um, and uh, I, you know, I'm happy that I had a lot of people that kind of looked out for me and were willing to kind of show me the right way to do things. I'm going to put you on the spot yep. uh, because this is something that, that I've, I've heard often across the country uh, teaching and I, I would be willing to you uh, that you've heard it too. Those folks in, in, in the criminal justice field that start off in corrections mm-hmm. before they go and hit the road mm-hmm. often have a distinct advantage because of the communication skills that they had to develop earlier and more quickly than maybe the road folks did. Yeah. So like, right. We police officers never get in trouble for making broad generalizations about people, but <laughs> generally speaking, corrections officers, uh, have the uh, ability to communicate and it's uh, a little bit better than someone that's like straight hired from, you know, a, a customer service background or some other background. And if you think about what their jobs are, I mean, it makes sense. Like they don't have a gun, they don't have weapons, they're confined in a, in a small space, largely outnumbered, and they have to be able to think quickly, not get flustered, have control over their communication, use their command presence. They're not looking to fight everybody because, like, you know, you can't you, know, you can't survive as a CEO if you're getting into a fight every single day. Um, so it, it makes sense why we get um, uh, they, they bring that 
skill set with them when they hit the road, if they make the jump from corrections uh, into, you know, patrol work or municipalities, stuff like that. Well, well, you you obviously uh, did some things right because uh, uh, you ended up moving into training and getting promoted. But what was your what was your first uh, endeavor, your first foray over into the training world? What was that all about? So um, I got tapped to be get involved as a physical training, a PT instructor with our academy. And it was really early in my career. So like the backstory is uh, I got hired with one agency while I was in that academy going through. So like they, they kind of sponsor you. So I'm getting paid for one agency. I get hired by the agency that I'm with now, which is Clifton, New Jersey. And um, the training lieutenant at the time kind of helped make sure that I didn't get dropped from the academy and then have to start over again. And so like I, I got a couple of like really nice kind of breaks early on. But this lieutenant, when I met him, he squared away. He was in shape. Um, and like I said, I came into athletics later into my life. So like I had won our agencies, uh, my Academy's physical fitness award and he kind of took to me. And so when I hit my three years max or the minimum, uh, he selected me to, you know, get the the proper training to be a a physical training instructor. So I ended up training recruits, you know, with three years of experience and mostly in the PT, but then that quickly evolved into practicals and scenario-based stuff and defensive tactics and search and seizure. Um, so it kind of, uh, opened up very, very quickly from, from 2008 and I had been hired in 2005. So I've kind of been in the training world in some aspects, basically, uh, for the majority of my career. And maybe your experience is different, but, uh, when I look back at when I was initially a trainer and I like to think that I've grown (laughs) since then, I've improved my skills since then. I, I just remember that this real desire to do things correctly and to do things well. And yet looking back, I, I think I was spinning my wheels a lot because I, I just didn't know what direction to go. And I needed direction as a trainer so that I could give directions to those that I was I was training. Yeah, I, I could. I, it's You ever read a paper that you wrote a whole bunch of years ago and you're like, oh, my God, this is unreadable now. Um, but back then, I thought it was the greatest piece of work I've ever created. Um, yeah, I think as trainers and instructors, you find a way to be just more efficient with your words. And a lot of it's like knowing what to say, when to say it. I, I, I can say, you know, I have the gift of gab, so I'm going to always say more than's necessary. <laughs> but um, I think that a lot of what good trainers are is just to be able to plant the seed, ask the question, point it out, and say, like, get more done by saying less. And I've certainly learned that in different aspects of training. Um, but sometimes you put me in a lecture, like a classroom setting, and I'll start pulling my own string and I'll talk the whole time. I almost just dropped the F-bomb there. I would be willing to bet <laughs> that the minimum word requirement never was an issue for you. Yeah, no, no, never, never. It, it may come to a shock. That time limit, though, uh, <laughs> yes. can be a challenge. <laughs> hey, well, the reason I brought that up right there uh, is on a recent episode, I was uh, interviewing Brian Hill mm-hmm. and, and we were talking about the ILETA conference. Yeah. And uh, I was sharing with him what my – I lead a moment was. And, and what I mean by I lead a moment, I'm talking about that time when you when I'm at the conference and, and something happens and it's like, son of a gun, this is why it's so important to come here. Not, not to make that big old head of yours any bigger, but uh, my I lead a moment involved you. It was when we first met and really started talking and it was in the lobby 
uh, of the hotel. And we ended up out there to like two o'clock in the morning. And I was thinking about something, well, number one, where, where did all, all the time go? But you, you were talking to me about leadership and it, it was just done at such a depth that I wish that new trainer Michael Warren had been able to be a part of, of that conversation. And so I, I want to just ask you, what is the ILEDA conference been for you? Because I know that you go regularly and uh, you presented and that type of thing. What does the ILEDA conference mean to you as a trainer and as an individual? All right. So as an individual, it's, it's certainly helped me like on a deep personal level. I've met some incredibly important people in my life uh, through ILEDA. Um, they've helped me like work through some really, really tough challenges in my personal life and my professional life. So like personally and individually, it's been an amazing conference to go to, to meet other people that are just passionate as passionate about improving our profession as I am. And so to meet those people that, and, and yourself included there, Mike, I'll, I'll pump your head up a little bit, right? You see who can geek out over stuff. Cause I geek out over stuff and like at work and people look at me like I'm insane. I geek out over in, in Ilita and everyone's like, yeah, tell me more. And like, and here's some stuff that I learned. And so that, that environment is like really, really contagious and like addictive. You want to get back there to have like that kind of that deep conversations that you can't have in other settings because we're all spread out across the country thankfully right thank thank god we're not all in the same spot <laughs> yeah no kidding um you know we all we all yeah we all go back to our different um domains and, and regions and states and we get to spread the knowledge that we learn so from an individual that that's been uh, huge for me as a trainer um i've both learned stuff i mean i, I really it has challenged me to become a much better trainer it's you know, the ILEDA conference made me a small fish in a very big pond again. So when, you know, you were training for as long as I was, right, I've been training for, you know, 15, 20 years now. And, you know, in New Jersey, I'm pretty well known, like locally in the county, everybody knows me, I've taught their, you know, their classes. So like you get this comfort level that you don't get challenged because you've grown, you've outgrown the pond you're in. So to be able to level up and to continue to do challenging things, to help master your craft, uh, I think is really important. And Ilita has been one of the best resources for me as a trainer in that purpose, in that way. You know, to present there, to be asked to do the Emerson Hour, um, you know, to, to participate in classes taught by, by mentors and, and new friends and thought leaders uh, is, is really, a, it's a really a valuable, valuable experience for me. And from a training perspective, uh, and, and you may be different than me. I, goodness knows. I hope so. I'm but, taller. But the thing is, <laughs> you are taller. It's not saying much. <laughs> I may have more hair. Could be on the back of my neck. I don't know. But anyway, the, um, you, you know, when, when you go and you teach at Ilita, perhaps the most daunting thing of all uh, is standing up in front of a class that is filled with people that you have looked up to. They're the big fish in the big pond. Correct. And they came to hear you speak. And it's like, oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, don't screw it up. Don't screw it up. Yeah. And, but but the, I found them to be incredibly supportive and also be willing to give you some incredible feedback. Yeah. Uh, everybody wants to see you win, right? It's like such an incredible environment. Like no one wants to see you fall flat on the face. You know, typically we're all our own worst, you know, critic, but they'll point out all the things that you did well, they give you one or two little pieces of advice that usually to, uh, to, 
address the, the main concerns that you may have had, but um, yeah, hundred percent, very uh, nerve wracking. And that's like one of those areas of growth, right? Like there's not that many people like, you know, back here at home that I'm really going to be too nervous talking in front of just for the sheer amount of time that I've done it. And then also the people that I'm teaching, I'm usually teaching down the chain of command. Um, and so now when you start teaching people that are, you know, they're more establishing, they've won awards, they're nationally recognized. And then they're sitting in your class. One, it's validating that they want to hear what you have to say, but then it's also, you know, produce sweaty palms. <laughs> they're getting ready to go. You see them in the uh, classroom like, boy, I hope I know what I'm talking about because here we go. So, um, but it's, it's been fantastic. But that that's also a challenge uh, as a trainer uh, that we should be always ensuring that we know what we're talking about, that we've done the research that we've, we've done the preparation. So we get up there. Uh, if we're talking to a two month veteran or we're talking to Brian Willis, you know, we should be delivering it and researching it the same because our people deserve credible and defensible. Yeah, a hundred percent. And, and the only way you get that is by being prepared, right? The, the key to being a good trainer and being in front of people and trying to get the, the most out of, the, of, out of their time is being prepared. I guess what I would say is I lead a, it, as it, it differs from, I think what we do most often is that the level of questions I'm going to get from a basic recruit are going to be very manageable. The questions I get from Brian Willis, uh, who studied leadership, like long before I even started my police career, uh, is going to be a little deeper. And if you're going to want to be able to hang in those conversations, your level of, of preparation, the depth and width you need to go, um, I think it just needs to be that much more. And I th- that's the challenge that I liked about Ivita is that I did not, you know, once you get comfortable, you're not growing anymore. So like, let's go back out there and make yourself uncomfortable. And it was good. I taught a couple of times, did breakout sessions and then boom, I get to ask to do the Emerson hour, which is, essentially like their Ted talk, you know, no PowerPoint, like all the things that all the crutches we rely on as trainers, like take it all away, strip it all down and then stick you in a room with just all trainers and like, cool, go ahead and have a, make an impactful statement to this room of trainers. Like you can't fake anybody in that setting. And it's, uh, you know, that was, that was very daunting for me. Um, but again, huge, huge opportunity to grow. I learned so much from the process, from doing it. It was so, so uh, rewarding. You know, people that talk about, it, I mean, we're, we're talking less than 10 minutes worth of, of talking, mm-hmm. yet the amount of preparation that people put into that 10 minutes often dwarfs what people put into a two or three hour class. Crazy. It was insane. It was insane. <laughs> well, well you, you know what, though? Tra- training is such a, a big deal to you. You're also deeply involved in another training organization, uh, and that organization is NAFTO. So why don't you just give us a brief overview of what NAFTO is? So NAFTO is the National Association of Field Training Officers. It was formed back, um, our records go all the way back to 1994. So we're, we're coming up on 30 years. Um, and it's a professional organization that supports the development and impl- implementation of uh, field training programs. So this organization is essentially to field training what the ntoa is the tactical officers if that makes sense to most people you you are the president of that association uh yeah right i am (laughs) uh yeah yeah so i've been the president since 2000 and i want to say 18 maybe 17 it's been a long time i got involved 
the first conference I went to was out in, in the Phoenix area in uh, Chandler, Arizona. Um, I want to say that was in 2016, got involved the next year. And then I think I was president by 2018. So meteoric rise that I would, I would expect nothing less from you. Yeah. Yeah. I, I have a, I might have a patience problem too. <laughs> <laughs> hey, well, uh, I want, I want to talk to you about FTO programs, uh, for a bit if we could. Yeah. Um, right now in, in law enforcement, we are seeing a, a recruiting and retention crisis. And most agencies mm-hmm. are struggling to get uh, enough applicants and certainly enough uh, qualified applicants as you travel around because you do a lot of travel and we'll talk about some of your trips coming up here. But what are you finding are the biggest concerns uh, in agencies and specifically in FTO programs when it comes to our brand new officers? So um, from the FTO perspective, like if I, if we're training the FTO, the one who's going to be in the car or work, walk in the, the cell block with the new, the new trainee or, or in the dispatch center, um, you know, their concerns are usually related around, uh, generational differences. Um, you know, the, the, the change, like the, the new, the style of new hire that we have. Um, so that's, that's their concern from a management standpoint and supervision standpoint. Um, actually the supervision standpoint is always trying to get all your FTOs on the same page. Like that, I think that's been around since like, (laughs) that's been an age, uh, age long problem, making sure everybody sees performance kind of the same way, which makes, you know, that that's a pretty daunting task. And from the administrating level or the administrative level, it's staffing, right? If I, if we haven't, we're short staffed as an agency, our FTO program is going to be staffed by new officers, officers that have less than three years of experience because maybe our entire field ops division has less than five years on. So like you have rookies training rookies. And then obviously we, you know, in part of the recruiting and selection process, our FTO program hopefully can serve as a uh, retention device, right? If we, we invest enough in the development of new officers, um, can we, can we use our FTO programs to kind of help retain our officers so we don't have a high turnover because that from an administrative standpoint, that's probably the, the other issue is you spend all your time and effort training officers and then they, they leave and go to another agency. Then we got to start all over again. Can we go back to the first one there? Yeah. The, the generational differences. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think a lot of people maybe that aren't in the profession, they, they don't understand uh, how difficult it is to to all of a sudden have somebody maybe not of your choosing be thrown into the car with you for, for for three or four weeks at a time, and now you're not only responsible for you but you're responsible for them, and then you add on top of that the fact that we perhaps communicate differently. What is NAFTA? What 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 do you teach people about trying to reach somebody who's different than you that's not in the public but they're in your front seat? Yeah. So uh, it's two things. The first thing is being uh, student centered, right? Not on like a classroom, like our instruction, we need to wrap our instruction around our students, right? So it's my job as a trainer to get the information out of my head into my student's head in a way that they could digest it. I shouldn't force feed them the information that I have the way that I interpret it. Because some may get it, but others not. Others may not, and then we're sitting this this very inefficient um, setting that uh, you know could actually, instead of motivating them, make them you know shy away from or walk away from uh, the, the training or, or become discouraged. 
So the one first thing would be to, you know, remember that our training as an FTO, we need to be student focused. It's our, our trainee's success is our job. So the second thing would really be recognizing that everybody's just slightly different. And like, um, and we were not usually well liked by the people that were training us. Like, right. So I think the, the dig, the dig that we have all the time is these new guys, these new guys, these new guys. And like this, these new guys have gone on for decades now. So we may not remember it because we're, we were these new guys, but we want to stop that, that perpetuation of that message. It's not these new guys. These new guys are your, your new partners, right? The, when you call for help and these guys are off of FTO, like these are going to be the people that rush to your aid. So can we incorporate them? Can we treat them like a peer? Can we treat them like a coworker? And that's that retention piece. It's like, I want you to want to stay here and I want you to listen to me. So then obviously that lends itself very nicely to the leadership concept and leadership pieces that we teach in our classes. Would it be safe to say that you don't uh, subscribe then uh, to the way that it, maybe it was in, in our agencies where when you're assigned to a senior FTO, uh, their first instructions were you were to sit down, shut up and, and, and don't touch anything. Yeah. Right. So like, and I've cut you off there. This is what it sounds like in New Jersey. Sit there. Don't touch the fucking radio, the fucking shotgun or the fucking windows. Right. It's like, all right, well, that's how I envision those commas are really important. Right. Those, <laughs> those, those commas are very important. I got them. There's three things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. Um, we, we, that, that's not something yeah, that, that may have worked for us. Right. And, and this is, I think the message that we send is like, all right, I was able to work through that message and become the type of officer that I wanted to be regardless of that message. And I would also stand on the corner. If my boss told me to stand on the corner in 10 degree weather and cross, you know, children and only one child walked by, like that's what I would do. Cause that was part of the job. That was part of paying dues. But the, the officers we're hiring now, like the landscape, that we're getting like the, even just looking at the employment data, like their, their friends are getting paid more to stay home and work from home. So we need to treat them nicer. We need to, to work with them in a way that makes them want to give up their nights and weekends to work for, with us because they can get paid doing something for doing something much easier than what, what we're asking them to do. So just recognizing that, Hey, listen, this is going to be a tough task. Let me explain why it's important. And not everybody's cut for this, right? Like make, I, I think that's, a, that's important messaging. So is it because of the landscape that you've had to alter your, the way you do things? Because this, in my mind, as just a Joe Blow on the street, not in law enforcement, seems like it might set up a dangerous precedent that they're not being held to a higher standard as when you came up in law enforcement. No, so like uh, my my friend and executive director Dan Green said, like leadership is about communication. Communication is about is the gift wrapping of a message. So like the box is the message. How you wrap it is the communication style. But they still got the box. So if I put a if I put a turd of a job in a box and I'm trying to sell it to you, uh, the art of being a good FTO is is relating why this job is important. Um, and making it meaningful to the trainee. That's that student-centered piece. So, for example, why do we need to work nights and weekends? Why do we have to work holidays, right? So, you know, um, you, obviously there's a drive, like emergencies happen um, on, uh, uh, on Christmas. They, or emergencies happen overnight, right? So this is, we, we need 24-hour staffing. That's like kind of the practical reason. But then hopefully we spend some time to understand why our officers got into law enforcement in the first place. And if there's a, a, 
like their why, their their what what drives them. And I'd say we we recognize that we're a different cough. Maybe that might be their I could do this because no one else can. Well, the reason you're working overnight and you're trying to keep yourself awake is that most people can't do what you're doing, and like uh, that's enough to motivate them to keep going on. And you know, the last piece could be even um, like the the end product, right? So maybe it's a very another practical thing is like while your friends may be getting paid more to stay home and you know work from home in their in their pajamas. What does their future look like as far as retirement goes? Because there's something to be said about the public sector. While I may be giving up my nights and weekends and maybe missing, you know, birthdays and important events, you know, many of us retire with some sort of guaranteed pension. And not that that's like the, the be-all, end-all, but that's certainly something that our friends in the private sector may not necessarily have. They may work, you know, well until they can collect Social Security some agency. My brother actually just retired from Patterson, New Jersey after 26 years and he's literally getting paid to stay home. And he's like, this makes up for all the stuff that I've missed and the sacrifices I made because now he gets to do whatever he wants. He's a cheer dad and gets to be super involved in any little thing he wants to do. Um, so that's another nice thing to, to wrap that message around. But it's never changing the standard. The jobs are still the jobs. Again, I don't think that, that, that they've changed very much. I mean, obviously, you know, there's a lot of reforms and there's lots of um, you know, nowadays it's overdoses, you know, with, uh, opiates. When I first started, it was the crack co- cocaine epidemic. So it's just, you know, the, the subject matter may change, but the underlying principles are always there. I, I think it's really important for, for the FTO, uh, well, for supervisors and administrators to ensure that, uh, our FTOs aren't our cynical folks. Because you talked about the why and and a lot of people get into this job and they say, hey, why do you want to be a police officer? Well, I want to help people and they truly mean it. And then if if their first experience with somebody from their agency is, hey, you know what? Everybody sucks. Everybody hates us. You know, it's it's it can destroy the why right out of the gate. And, And that just doesn't seem to be good for. Uh, productivity for happiness for satisfaction for retention for anything yeah I, I agree with you and so now here's the challenge right so do those people exist in our agency yes the, the question i'll ask you and of course they do and do they hold do they they have value for our agency and like a lot of them are became cynical because they have a ton of experience right so i would say they usually have value now it's how do you balance that value for what they could harm and so this is where we start balancing if I'm an administrator looking to staff my FTO program, can I staff it with some newer officers, maybe even with less than three years on, right? So that's usually like the benchmark for most agencies for some sort of specialty assignment is three years of, uh, of experience. But maybe I have an officer that's shown themselves to be very proficient in patrol work, and that's what I need them to be an FTO in. So I can have a new officer ride with them for the first couple of weeks and then ride with a senior officer. And they're going to get all the knowledge um, from the senior officer, but they'll also have that first foundation set by someone who's a similar mindset to them that is not cynical yet and actually more closely aligned to be their peer than some of the senior guys. Because I know when I got hired, the senior guys that told me, you know, the same saying that, uh, you know, I had with the, added the colorful language with, while they were coworkers, I never really saw them as my peers because they were so much older and they were on the way out. Yep. And I, I think that's an important message is like, hey, they still hold value. And I, I don't I'm not going to discriminate against them. But I also recognize that while we're all coworkers, we're all not necessarily all peers. 
And I think that that's important because you'll go through your career with your peers and your, and it's usually through your age cohort or your, um, or your hiring core. In fact, in my agency right now, I got hired with a group of 13. Um, I, we've had a bunch of promotions. I want to say six of us are supervisors, at least five of us are administrators. So, I mean, we will be running my agency, you know, from top to bottom, um, before the end of my oh career. My goodness. And that's a kind of an interesting thing. Yeah, I know. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Oh my goodness. You use the word interesting. I use the word scary. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, yeah. A hundred percent. But you know, I, I, and I, I, I kind of started that conversation because I want to emphasize, I think one of the most difficult supervisory jobs in an organization is the FTO supervisor because it's managing, you know, not just topics and standards and, and requirements, but it's also managing and, and handling people and, and pairing people up. I mean, it's, it's, you've got to have the right trainer with the right student uh, when it's one-on-one. Yeah. And I think that's a, that's an incredibly difficult job. Yeah. I think it's a lot like fielding a team, right? So like if, uh, you know, you're, you're playing basketball and you need, uh, you know, you need to put your best five people out on the court, you put your, like, that's kind of easy. But what happens now when one of them goes down, who do you replace them with? So you start managing your roster, right? This is real supervision, real leadership, real administration. So like, I think one of the biggest roles our FTO supervisors can have is to put some of the conversations in context. Mm-hmm. All right, so what are you learning from this person and why? What do you, what'd you learn from this person? How is this person behaving? Because you can start putting some of their opinions and some of the, the stories and some of the stuff into context. So that allows the trainee to interpret that information of whether, hey, well, do I need to adopt this? Do I understand why this person behaves this way? Because in the same time, where we're all individual adults and we, we're making kind of micro judgments as we go along while we're inheriting my, uh, you know, our agency's culture, but we're also going to start making an impact and influence our agency's culture. So the supervisor, rather than getting lost in the weeds of like, hey, what'd you learn? What'd you learn? What'd you learn? Should be like, hey, what are you learning from these officers? What do you like? What don't you like? Let me see if I could put what you don't like into context. Because maybe you don't like it, but maybe it's important. Maybe you don't like it. Yeah, listen, that's just his personality. You've learned how to work with someone who's different than you. Right? So I think that that's useful um, uh, conversation. And it also makes it a little bit more manager, like supervisors supervise. If they're in the weeds doing the actual training, right, that we're not using our, our time uh, as efficiently as possible. Our, our FTOs should be the one providing as much instruction as possible. There's a book called How's the Culture in Your Kingdom by Dan Cockrell. He makes the case and makes a very good case for it that the most important day in an employee's cultural life with an organization, no matter what the organization is, is day one. Yeah. Day one sets the tone for the culture. And you mentioned culture and what you were talking about there. And to me, it just highlights how important the role of an FTO is, especially the FTO on day one. And, and I think we need to be more intentional as a profession uh, of choosing day one FTOs because it sets the tone for 25 years. A hundred percent. And this is where the supervisors and administrators that are, are working their programs have some of the greatest influence because before I even start you in the FTO program, there's usually some post academy, like pre FTO training. What better time than to get some of your, your star FTOs together 
with your trainees and go out and do some police work as a group. This is something we started doing in my agency. And first of all, it's got me out of the office, to do some police work again, which is awesome. But uh, it's, it's fun. You get to see new officers interact with the public for the first time. Right. So one of the things we've done is we'll take, you know, we had six officers graduate. I grab a couple of, uh, of traffic officers, a couple FTOs, the traffic officers set up, you know, the tap, the, the typical New Jersey speed trap, right. They're doing the radar speed enforcement. So they're pulling car over cars are, uh, you know, one after the other. And our trainers are going up doing nothing more than interacting with the public issuing warnings. In fact, like the laughable, uh, uh, the laughable thing that our last group had is, uh, our, our court system had run out of paper tickets. So we literally had no tickets to issue. So I'm like <laughs> oh, discretion, unless we come across something criminal, our discretion is we're doing warnings only. So you should go up there with, uh, being able to, uh, you know, put the pin back into any potential grenade you encounter and calm the person down saying, Hey, we're just, we're doing an information educational campaign today, making sure people understand the importance of driving slowly through these neighborhoods. Right. So, um, and getting them to just interact and have fun and smile and like, and this is what police work was supposed to be like. And then we set them up, listen, you're going to go to patrol work. It's not going to be all fun. You're going to see some hard stuff. You're going to interact with like different people. But at your heart, like this is what police work is. It's going out. You, you will all be coworkers together. So if, you know, you encounter people that you don't necessarily get along with, remember that once you're done with FTO, you end up becoming part of a squad and you'll likely be people that um, are, are like you or that you even from your class, you know. So I think that I'm one of the things our agency's done a little bit better of a job at recently is just trying to set that first day culture up. Um, for us, it's post academy because we send them out to a regional academies where we, we, um, you know, they're, they're turned over to a, a different organization for their training and they come back to us and then we, we take them from there. But I think that's important and that's, it's fairly easy to set up. It's a day of training. And, and actually the one other thing we really try to do is we try to get them to do police work the first day, the first possible day they can. So like we got some mandatory training to do, but if by, after lunch we can go out and do some police work because they've gone through the academy for 20, 20 something weeks. The last thing they need is more cl classroom stuff. So as long as we've checked all the boxes on our certifications and they're properly supervised, we love getting them out there. Um, you know, we get lucky, you get a warrant arrest, you get something that like really is super exciting to someone who's brand new. And like, that's what that person's going to remember on their first day. And like, for me, like that's like kind of magical. So I'm trying to wrap my head around this because I've had some bosses when I first started out just in, you know, my jobs that were really kind of hard on me, but it paid off because they pushed me to evolve and learn and, and get better. So how do you push the new officers to help them grow and progress, but maybe do it in a style that they can take in without, you know, saying, sit down and shut the F up. Yeah. So I like that. You didn't take the bait to swear too. I, that's apparently my, my, mute, <laughs> my swear button is, is fully activated blinking. Actually, it's begging me to smash it. My mom. Maybe yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So I, I like the metaphor, right? I don't think you could really push people. I think you have to pull them, right? You have to lead. You have to like show that you're willing to learn. You have to show that you're willing to listen. You have to show that you're willing to go out there and do the work with them. Right. If you're uh, obviously they need to be motivated, but most people are motivated by like uh, by being good, like they want to be good at their job. And they look at our FTOs and our senior officers as people, as role models, just because they're good at something that the, the trainees aren't. And so they, they'll, they'll I really analyze what they're doing, watch them work. And you know what they need is the space to try. 
And I think that's what, you know, our new generation of officers, you know, just based on their, their upbringing and like generational research is that they have a hard time kind of being uncomfortable. So like being, Hey, listen, no one knows what they're doing the first time, but I'm here as an FTO. I'm going to make sure you don't get hurt. You don't do anything illegal to get a sued or fired. So go and try. And once you realize that it's the process of trying and it builds your confidence and you really see them take off. And it's really, I mean, if you've trained people for any, any length of time, based on how long, how much, how much call volume you have, like we're seeing our guys like four or five weeks in, um, our, our new officers are really starting to get it. And, and so like, uh, and that's what we need to do. We just need to be patient with them. Uh, we need to continue to, to lead and show that we're willing to learn as much as they are. Um, but if you're, if you're thinking, how do I push this guy? How do I push this guy? I think we're, we're on the, we're looking at the problem the wrong way. Uh, or at least I, I'll correct myself, not the wrong way. Uh, not as efficient as we could be because you could probably get them. You could probably push them there, but it's going to take a lot of effort. Well, you know, Paul, I think that that approach of getting them into police work as quick as possible. Uh, I can, I can remember when I came out of the Academy, there were two other people that I came out with and, and, you know, we had to do the policy review Yeah, and and you've got to get signed this paperwork. And it's like, listen, I did 14,285 pushups so I could go out and turn lights and sirens on. Yes. And and now I'm, I'm sitting in that squad room again. Correct. And now even more uncomfortable. Now I have a duty belt on my vest on. I'm even more uncomfortable and I'm reading three binders worth of policies, right? Like, uh, (laughs) I said, to me, uh, th- again, that's, that's demoralizing. And, um, so can we, can we get them out on the road? And I, I'm not saying to be negligent, right? I'm not, I'm not advocating for that, but for my agency will make sure they're up to date on their use of force. We'll make sure they're up to date on their firearms. We'll make sure that they're up to date on um, their constitutional law. The reality is they're so closely supervised that they're not going to have a chance to use any of that anyway, but it's just a kind of like that disaster proofing right. for us in, in case, and then go out and interact with the public, right? They're under the care of like, so I'm a Lieutenant. I'm literally running the entire detail. We have a couple of trainers, the FTOs that kind of will use those as first line supervisors. The traffic officers are there doing overwatch. They're helping me with officer safety. And it's, uh, I mean, it's, it's really, uh, it's a manufactured environment, but it's real. Right. So if that makes any sense, right. It's like real life scenario training and it keeps them excited. Oh yeah. And then we can go back and we could talk if we, if we ended up, you know, cause then we'll go back where we'll over the next couple of days, we will sign off on all the mandatory policies, but then we, maybe we have an experience that I can say, Hey, you remember we booked the person. Well, here's the policy that dictates what actions we took when we were in cell block. And then now that policy is actually meaningful which means they can remember it better rather than just learning stuff like arbitrarily. Right. So they, they have a huge cognitive base, but their psychomotor domain is, is barren. Their, their affective domain is barren. Right. So like getting them to see this stuff in context makes it so much more memorable and usable. Uh, you know, Paul, uh, well, after I went through all the policies, they, they finally took us out on the road, but they took us out with one FTO and there were three of us in the vehicle. Nice. Well, two of us had uh, some some more agency experience than the other one did. So they had me and my partner sit in the back seat while the uh, other new officer sat up front and uh, the, the FTO went and made a traffic stop and that was all fine and good until Mikey tried to get out of the back seat. Oh, man. And that's something you... Yeah, um, yeah. So, so me and this other new officer sitting back there in the back seat together, we can't get out. And it's like, son of a gun, this sucks. All right. <laughs> I hope nobody comes out with a gun right now because it's all bad if they do. So I could I could feel your pain, right? So um, we hired the last cycle. We hired um, 
a, a huge, it was like a 10 or 13 person in the class, officer class, um, wow. which is big. We're a 160 man department. That's almost 10% of our agency. So when they came out, like we needed to change our FTO program because it would have really debilitated our patrol operations, right? And that's something that I'm pretty passionate about. Our FTO program should live in patrol, but it shouldn't be so cumbersome and debilitate that it debilitates how we operate on a day-to-day basis. So one of the things we did is we spent two weeks doing group training. So we really went out like with one FTO and, and multiple trainees and we responded to these calls. So I literally was in the backseat of one of our armor cars and I rolled around with the windows down in the back so I could reach out and open the door for myself. And I'm, you know, I was literally training three trainees at the same time. So I feel your pain, but if you know about it and you can manage it, it's really not that hard. It was actually a, a pretty cool experience for me. It's something that I heard that the Chicago um, PD was doing out of necessity. And obviously it's not exactly the best in, uh, environment to evaluate performance, but if you're looking to, if you're a busy agency and, or if you're, you're pretty short staffed one car accident, I have three trainees there. I can train three people on this detail at once. So if you're looking to streamline, so I know a lot of agencies are moving more to like an instructional phase and then an evaluation phase of their FTO program. So like it's heavy instruction. It's just mostly documentation, not a lot of evaluation. Really, you want to, if you're going to evaluate, you want to do one-on-one, right? So there, you don't have any uh, kind of corruption there in, in, in who's influencing who, but if it's straight, hey, this is how you use a computer. This is how you, this is how you navigate town. This is how you drive lights and sirens. Like you put a bunch of people in a car and get a lot of work done pretty quickly. And um, uh, we got some pretty decent feedback from it. It wasn't all perfect. It was definitely like a pilot run. Um, this next group that comes out, we may try uh, uh, something similar. But um, it really is um, uh, an interesting uh, environment. It's, it's certainly, I can feel your pain. I'm like, get me out of this car now. Like, you cannot open the door in the back seat fast enough. I'm sitting here watching. Mm-hmm. It's all bad. Yeah. Hey, but but you know what though? You, you recently got to ride ride in some police cars really far away from New Jersey. Uh, we'll tell tell our listeners where you got to ride in police cars here recently. So we were pretty lucky to get invited back to the island, uh, the U.S. territory of Guam. Uh, NAFTA was brought back out to to deliver another week of training. We were back out. We were out there in 2018 initially. And we got to go back out as part of an officer wellness and resiliency uh, a program a grant. Um, so we're super fortunate to be out there. The first time we went out, we were able to do a ride along. And obviously, as most people would understand, like being from New Jersey, I, you know, my, I can actually see New York City from my, uh, my, my, uh, my window right now. I got very metro, very, uh, very busy area. And I'm going to go to a tropical <laughs> island. Will... One, police work be the same. Two, will our curriculum carry over? Three, will my, will my jokes make sense? And then most importantly, how do these people swear on the island? Because I got to make sure that I'm well received. And um, that ride along was, uh, was, was, was pretty comforting. I think the first couple of jobs, I went to a, um, a two homeless people fighting, right? It was the classic uh, do you want to file complaints? No. Do you want to file complaints? No. Is anybody injured? No. All right, go on your separate ways. Like, I mean, I've done that job probably a thousand times in my career as a patrolman. Um, there's the, uh, there's a, a bunch of tourists, right? So the, the Guam has a very heavy, uh, tourism, uh, uh, economy. And so a bunch of tourists had their cars broken into at a hotel. So, uh, you know, we had to take a bunch of reports for car burglaries. Um, and then there was, uh, a basically, uh, landlord tenant 
dispute or an eviction or, you know, basically someone was squatting in someone on someone's property and they just wouldn't leave. So we had to go and kind of mediate that civil dispute. So super comforting knowing that police work was really the same. So that, that was the first one. Uh, curriculum was going to be, uh, it was going to carry over very nicely because our, our, um, you know, the police work was so, so similar. Um, some of the jokes we had to change, right? So their environment is jungle, right? So like I had to recognize that like, you know, some of the jokes of me like, you know, ending up in a, in an urban area, like running through a housing project, I just had to say, you know, change that it's, it's not unlike running through the jungle at night. You're like, you don't have to, if you don't need to, right? There's spiders as big as my hand and I, I'm going to scream pretty loudly if I end up with one. I'm going to scream like yes. a guy on Home Alone, yes. right? Um, and then the last thing, everybody swears like me. So it's perfect. They, I fit right in. Yeah. 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 I can tell you, uh, Mikey doesn't do snakes. Okay. So, so if there's a foot pursuit mm -hmm. and, and said foot pursuit enters said jungle, mm -hmm. uh, Mikey's probably got a radio. I lost him. Yeah. Just <laughs> send canine because Mikey's not going in a place where there's snakes. Yeah. It's not going to happen. Snakes. Why did it have to be snakes? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Indiana Jones. I was immediately, I immediately thought of uh, Hangover 2, uh, like, you know, when they, they lose the, the, their friend to, uh, to the city, they say, oh, Bangkok has him now. Uh, the jungle has him now. He's <laughs> good luck. Good luck to him. <laughs> oh, my goodness. NAPTO is, is doing some really good work. And I, I was fortunate to be able to attend uh, your conference last year. And uh, you guys have your conference scheduled again this year. And if your website is correct, and I hope that it is, uh, that conference is scheduled for June 14, 15, 16 in Phoenix, Pahonix, Arizona. Phoenix, yes. So I'm from New Jersey, so I, I speak clearly. My spelling is not so good because sometimes I don't pronounce things correctly. But I do know that Phoenix <laughs> does not start with an F. Hey, but but what what can somebody and for for our listeners, I highly recommend uh, the conference. I enjoyed uh, myself uh, immensely last year. Oh, by the way, let me throw it out there. Uh, Mike is a, a reigning cornhole champion from NAFTO 2022. Just throwing it out. Congratulations! There. Uh, but uh, congratulations, Mike! Congratulations! Way to bury the lead, Mike. That's important. Yeah, I've got the socks and the bottle of liquor to prove it. But uh, did you get that tattoo that you said you were going to get? No. Nope. Well, yeah, but uh, you have to be really special to see it. All right, fair so enough. how about that? Fair enough. But uh, it, <laughs> Lord, <laughs> but but anyway, uh, what can our listeners expect to get from a NAFTO conference? What 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 if they were to attend? Uh, how is it going to help them as an FTO or an FTO supervisor? So I'm going to tell this story from my perspective as the first time attendee back in 2016. So I got uh, I, I was lucky enough to go out. Um, not knowing what to expect. I had no idea whether or not this was like a, a legit organization. Uh, I got approved to go out and I was super pumped. Um, the first keynote speaker was Brian Willis, who was like amazing motivation, leadership uh, uh, message that he had in there, how important uh, it is to be an FTO. So it was like largely like re-energizing uh, re for me. The second uh, class that I went to was Dan Green talking about the, the 21st century uh, FTOing, it's really, it's, it's the heart of, of what we talk about and what we teach is that, that student-centered uh, uh, training, um, the, the perspective taking of, of the FTO. Um, and then like multiple, multiple breakout sessions after there. each one, like I left with like a gigantic pad completely full of notes and ideas. And a lot of them were things that I could immediately implement 
without any policy change. And I think that that's really important is a lot of this stuff is free. You can choose to use it in the car or you, you, you don't have to, but like you don't need permission from your supervisor or your policy change to become a better leader, to become a better trainer. So that's, that was huge. But then on the, uh, in, on the breaks and in between, and then during like some of the, our events that we ho- uh, hold, like the, the cornhole championship that we run, um, met some awesome people, met some uh, folks that I still, you know, stay in, in contact from time to time. Um, you know, meet them from all over the country, realize that a lot of the problems we have in our car at home or on uh, in our dispatch rooms or on our in our cell blocks are very similar to the ones that they're having all over the country. And like that feeling it that like, hey, these problems aren't just mine is uh, uplifting. It's like you're not alone in this in this fight. And like to see that there's other like minded people out there trying to solve the same problems. You can hear what they've tried and you can implement that back home. You can kind of spitball ideas. Um, it's just, it's, it's really good camaraderie. It's a really very re-energizing from a FTO standpoint, but then as a supervisor, tons of information about best practices, how to implement change selection, right? That's, it's really just been some excellent, excellent training to be a part of. So I speak, you know, from my, my, kind of my, my, conference evaluation of that 2016 conference and that's what we try to put on year after year after year for our attendees and it was my experience that you were successful uh during my time at your conference i got to hear joe willis uh deliver a presentation uh joe's been a guest here on the podcast i always enjoy hearing him speak i thought he was fantastic Uh, i got to hear justin witt Mm -hmm. uh present at the uh at the dinner and he's also been on here. And, and I'll tell you what, uh, Justin, his, his presentation, dude, it, it hit me in the gut. Be safe, you know? right? And, Be safe. And, uh, well, yeah, yeah, exactly. And Because that's the only thing you can give him because, you know, you haven't prepared him well enough. Yeah, you didn't train him well enough. You remember the picture uh, they had of the uh, the table there at the training academy with all the, the vests on top of it? And he says, yeah, the, turn, the turned in riot gear. Yeah. And, and man, that one just it got me. But uh, for our listeners, we're going to include it uh, in the episode notes, the show notes from uh, this episode, uh, the the website for NAFTO and also the uh, the information on the NAFTO conference. Uh, if you want to be an FTO. If you are an FTO or your supervised FTOs, I cannot recommend highly enough uh, to go out there. Uh, you mentioned Dan Green. Dan is a heck of a good guy, uh, incredibly smart, yep. and, and he's the executive director of NAFTO. Uh, but uh, I'm going to throw, throw a shout out out there to Graham. Okay. Graham yeah, so the- yeah, let's, let's, let's run a list here. Hold on. So I, I don't want to step all over. Graham Tinius, another phenomenal ind- individual. Uh, we got Jeff Van Hook from uh, Larimer County. Uh, another, uh, these are all executive board. We got Jenny Hall from Louisville who just joined our board. Uh, there's been some phenomenal people. Uh, we got Stu Brown on our board. Uh, these people, when you just, you, you could meet them in the hallway and have a phenomenal conversation. You could attend their class and get motivated by them. Um, so now circle back around and, and share some compliments to Graham because I hey. cut you off. But I wanted to make sure I, I named all the people responsible for running NAFTA, making sure NAFTA is, is kind of driving uh, the, the the driving force for improved FTO uh, training. But go ahead and, and shower Graham with, with praise. Hey, but you know what, though, Graham, one of his big responsibilities is identifying the venues for these conferences. Oh, yeah. And, and Graham takes he, he takes his job serious and he does a fantastic job. So you can rest assured when you go out there, you're going to be in a sweet place. 
and there's a lot to be said for being in a sweet place. Uh, so, and then I, I'm just going to throw it out there again too. Uh, Graham, uh, we, we hope to have him on the podcast at some point coming up here. Uh, but that guy does some great volunteer work. Some of the stuff that he does uh, after natural disasters. Yeah, uh, great volunteer. Another. Yeah, an, to tell him, man. Another, another super, super, uh, super impactful Emerson Hour. If you can yep. catch that on Ilita, I think that was probably one of the more moving and and mm-hmm. raw and like down to earth uh, Emerson Hours, like yes. spoken from the heart. Um, yeah, just just a phenomenal. I was lucky enough to go to Guam with him uh, the first time. It was life changing. The second time, life changing. Uh, it's just he's all around. He's I, I would call him uh, my best friend. He is fantastic. People, both on and off the job. Yep. As we're closing here, I just want to tell you how much. Number one, I appreciate you. I, I appreciate the work that you do. Uh, I appreciate your investment in me. I appreciate the fact that you push me uh, to to be better, to learn better, and uh, so. Thank you very much, Paul. And thanks for being on our podcast. Well, I listen, I really appreciate this, this opportunity. It's and anytime someone invites you to be a part of something that they believe in. It's like a huge uh, one. Uh, it's very validating, but two, it's like a huge responsibility. So you want to make sure you, you come through because I know how much you care about this podcast and you can tell by the, the product that you put out. And um, uh, thank you very much for the invite. Thank you very much for being the sounding board, right? Being the guy that I could deep dive and geek out over, uh, and, you know, topics with because not there's not that many people that you could really do that with so i appreciate your friendship buddy a month away and uh brent i i appreciate fellow nerds and uh this guy uh is one of the best so uh it was everything i hoped it would be and i want to give a shout out one more shout out real quick to the ftos out there in law enforcement one of the hardest jobs in the profession uh, but we've got some people out there that do it day in and day out and they are making a difference. And I appreciate that. Well, and uh, we're going to put the links to NAFTO in the show notes and also his uh, Paul's Emerson R video we'll put up and actually we'll put a link to all the different Emerson Hour speakers in the show notes. If folks want to uh, kind of look through that, Ilita has all those uh, videos up on the YouTube channel and you'll find that at between the lines of virtualacademy.com along with all the podcast providers and other information. You can get all of our episodes right there at uh, between the lines of virtualacademy.com. And Paul, it was uh, everything I expected it to be. Although your profanity count was a little low, I think, <laughs> uh, you know, I think you showed restraint. I don't even think you were fucking trying to be honest. <laughs> there it is. That's what I was fishing for. <laughs> Thank you so much. Yeah, for, I mean, uh, come on. You, I mean, you self-censored. I mean, it's a lot of it's the environment. If no one else is swearing, I don't want to be the guy standing out in the room, but <laughs> no, I understand. Yeah. No, I try to be the professional, you know, no, uh, no, no bad words on my part, but everybody else let those profanities fly. I, I got you. I got you. Well, thanks so much for being a guest with us today. And, uh, we look forward to uh, meeting up with you soon. Yeah, for sure. Thanks guys.